I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them. Leading by example. One of the reasons we don't often have political figures on by example is because politics is so often so negative. But I made something of an exception in this conversation. When was the last time you put the word politics and happiness together? Probably never. But Arthur Brooks, who also is the head of the American Enterprise Institute, does exactly that. AEI is a center-right think tank which takes on issues from economics to education to foreign policy. And Arthur Brooks has been the head of AEI for the last 10 years. He will be leaving the organization soon, but he's going to continue to dedicate his life to promoting things that really matter. What Arthur has been writing about recently is happiness and why happiness is so important to citizens in our lives and actually to our nation. I think you're really going to learn a lot from Arthur, as I always do when I sit down and talk to him. He is grounded in his faith. He is motivated by real principle. He's a thoughtful leader whose point of view, while sometimes political and focused on policy, mostly focuses on respect, on love, and on happiness. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I'm here with Arthur Brooks, such a delight to be with you again. Thank you, Carly. Great to be with you, always. Well, always. And in fact, I was thinking before we sat down about the last time that mm. we were together, and we were on a stage uh, right after President Trump's inauguration, and we were talking about politics and policy and how we as citizens ought to operate. Uh, and I want to continue that conversation today, as well as talk about your upcoming book, but before I do that, mm -hmm. I want to just a little bit introduce you to our listeners and viewers of By Example, our podcast. I, you're very famous, world famous. Probably everyone knows who you are. <laughs> but I want to just... No, I think not. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my world, you're yeah. very famous and everyone knows who you are. But maybe uh, I can just give our listeners my introduction of you. I right. first came across you... Um, from afar. Um, perhaps one of your books had just been released, but this was more than a decade ago. And um, I remember reading what you were writing and thinking, wow, this is a real intellectual in the best sense of the word, talking about political issues cultural issues, community issues, in a way that is rigorous, that is clear-eyed, and that is also prescriptive. Hmm. And that's a pretty rare combination, actually. Hmm. And then I began to follow you, and I realized that you would talk about things that other people weren't talking about. 
So for example, uh, as a leader in the conservative movement, all of a sudden you started talking about poverty and why poverty was a problem for everyone and why we were approaching poverty in the wrong way. And once again, your analysis, your assessment was intellectual and rigorous and clear-eyed and incredibly empathetic. A, we don't have enough empathy. Hmm. And you displayed empathy as well as intellectual rigor. And you've always been a bit ahead of the curve. So that's the Arthur Brooks that I know in your hmm. new book that's coming out today, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. uh, is once again a bit ahead of the curve. And lately you've been talking about happiness, when mm -hmm. a lot of people are deeply unhappy, but also not talking about it. Right. So the Arthur Brooks that I know that I want to introduce to our listeners and viewers is a person of great depth, of intellectual rigor, of empathy and compassion, who's had a very interesting and non-traditional path. Hmm. Um, That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the Arthur that I know. It means a lot coming from you, Carly. I mean, look, you've been a real visionary in the ideological space and in the business world. You're bringing all these ideas together such that we can have better leaders. So those words from you mean everything to me. Thank you for that. Well, that's, that's a very generous commentary coming from <laughs> you. And it's, it's why I wanted to sit down with you. Yeah. Because in By Example, we talk with people who are leading and problem solving and having a positive impact every day. I've spent so much of my life focused on what makes a leader a leader right. and why do some problems get solved while other problems fester. Mm. And the catalyst is always leadership. Mm -hmm. But I think we're so confused about what leadership is today. We right. think it's the guy with the big title, the big position. Mm -hmm. And it a lot turns, of power. yeah, a lot of power. Yeah, and it right. turns out so many of those so-called leaders disappoint us so profoundly. Yeah, that's right. And the institutions that they lead are disappointing us profoundly. No, I completely agree. You know, it's amazing. You talk about uh, you know, our, our backgrounds really determine a lot of how we see the world. Mm -hmm. uh, yours, I mean, you were in the business world um, before you came into the ideological world, before you became an ideal leader in the Republican Party and in conservative politics. And that the way that you talk about leadership it reflects the experiences that you had as a, just a, at the pinnacle of the business world. And, and these experiences that we have, we have to bring them to bear for the, as a force of good. My own background was in the arts. I was a professional French horn player for 12 years before I went back I to... I know, so amazing. Yeah, it's, it's unusual, but you know, this is why America's so great, right? That's right. I mean, when you think about how, where you started off and how, where you got as a, as a, a leader in business. I was a medieval history major, so there you <laughs> a go. medieval history major. That's and why we get along. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like, but, but, but also just the way that you rose in the business world, um, the way that you went from where, what you were doing inside the business. A secretary. You were doing executive assistant work to CEO. That's America. I mean, see, yes. see, this is a country of ambitious riffraff, and that's what we want. You know, so what alarms me the most about America, by the way, Carly, is that we're getting away from that. We're that's getting right. away from the idea that this is a country that we, we're the only country in the world where we're proud of the fact that our grandparents were poor. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? And, you know, your background is so interesting to me because you took so much from it, and, and you're using it so well. My own background in the arts is different but I try to use it in the same way. You know, when I was a, when I was a, a professional musician, I was playing in the Barcelona Orchestra, and, and, and I was just, I admired Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, the greatest composer ever lived. Well, to, we could have an argument about true, that, but we true. won't. 
True. Um, but at least one of the greatest composers yes. I've ever lived. And, and what really impressed me about him, this was, and, and this leads to how I see leadership, is what he said in a minor biography near the end of his death about why he wrote music. Here's what he said. The, pur the aim and purpose of all music is nothing less than the refreshment of the soul and the glorification of God. Mm. And I read that and I thought, can I say that about my work? Of course you can. But I, I'm not sure I could. And that's what impelled me to do something yes. different. Because I said to myself, I want to answer m that question about my work the way Bach does. And it seemed to me that that's the way, and, and again, you know, for, for those of us who are, who are listening or watching us right now, and, and they're not traditionally religious, you know, don't be thrown off by this. The point of, of work is to serve. The point of leadership is to serve. That's right. You know, full stop. Yep. And it looked, Bach, maybe the greatest composer who ever lived, taught me that. And I thought, huh. So if that's the aim and purpose of his music, that better be the aim and purpose of my work. I left the music business because I couldn't answer that in the affirmative. I looked for something else where I actually could. I became a social scientist because I wanted to be a force to refresh the soul and glorify God, at very least to serve other people. Mm. I knew that you know, leadership takes all different forms, whether you're the CEO of Hewlett Packard, whether you're the, you know, the president of a think tank, whether you're a college professor, whether you're making a podcast, one way or the other, you're leading. You're forming the way that people think you have leverage. Everybody listening to us has more leverage than they think. Ask yourself, are you refreshing souls? Are you serving others? And if you're, if you're, if you're basically glorifying yourself or, or garnering your own power, you're doing it wrong. You're wasting your time. Yeah. You may be or may not hurt, be hurting other people, but you're wasting your time and there's no time to waste. You've said it so beautifully and so well, and you're illustrating also why I was so excited to talk to you, because the purpose of a leader is to serve others. The highest calling of a leader is to change the order of things for the better and unlock potential in others. That's mm. what I say all the time. It's what I've learned, starting from the bottom and going to the top. And everyone, anyone, actually can lead. Anyone mm. can have a positive impact. It's just... Today, I think people get so many signals that tell them exactly the opposite. Our culture is so, it's mean, it's mean-spirited. Hmm. We focus on flash, controversy, conflict, fame, all these things that have nothing to do with service. Right. They have nothing to do with glorifying God for sure. They have nothing to do with making a positive right. impact, and yet we get so caught up in that and our politics seems to be all about as George Washington warned us in 1789 winning yeah not serving right not leading not problem-solving that's right and winning you, in power absolutely and that's it's hugely alarming but but of course within every challenge every tragedy every problem there lies a huge opportunity that's right. you know for the past 10 years you and I have known each other for for these years and, and we talk and we we mutually worry about the drift in the country and then we really regret some of the bad things that have happened over the past few years where the sense of purpose, sense of vocation has been largely bereft among a lot of leaders who are more keen on, on garnering power and winning and, and their own personal glory. But, you know, that's a, actually a real opportunity because the drift that our country was in needed something to shake people awake. And I think that that's what's going on right now. I mean, I have data. You'll, you'll love this. I have data um, that, that show that 93% of Americans hate how divided we've become as a country. Yeah. So, 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 I mean, we think about this. 
I don't like the hate that I hear all the time on social media and, and in the elite media and every place else, it seems. Yeah. The culture of contempt. That's what my new book is about, is yes. about the culture of contempt. I hate it too, but so do 93% of Americans. If it were just Carly and Arthur regretting the culture of contempt, that's a really big problem, right? Then, I don't know, move. But if it's, <laughs> if it's, it's Carly and Arthur and 93% of Americans, that's a huge opportunity. Now, what does it mean? The other 7%, they like it, and they're in charge. Yeah. The other nine, the other 7%, they, they're getting rich and powerful and famous and they're getting clicks and they're getting a lot of prestige and they're screaming on college campuses and there's some getting elected to office and some have great big TV contracts. Yeah, got it. But you know what? The other 93% of us are kind of sort of following along sometimes, but we don't like it and we're looking for a way to fight back. Woe be unto the 7% because the 93% of us are going to strike back. I mean, look. When, they don't, when Americans don't like something, they won't put up with it forever. This is not communist China. We actually have a voice. We have yep. a choice. And this is the opportunity we've been waiting for. The malaise and the drift and things getting worse. But now people are being shaken awake. You know, the, you know, the, the fact that, you're, that you have this really super popular podcast, that's a bellwether. That's an indicator. That's market demand. Nobody's forcing anybody to listen to Carly Fiorina's podcast. They're listening to it because they want something empowering and they want something good. They want to think about what leadership really ought to be. And so for those that are kind of bullying the rest of us, that 7%, a new day's coming. Well, so many people listening to this are going, yay, Arthur, <laughs> we, we want a new day to come. It's so interesting the way you say that because, of course, I wasn't aware of the 93% data, although it doesn't surprise me. But what I see, a lot of the work that we do is in communities with nonprofit organizations that have been dealing with, you know, what Alex de Tocqueville would have called civil society, some cases in cooperation with businesses or other organizations, that are dealing with festering difficult problems, whether it's homelessness here in D.C. or mental health or veterans issues. The shift that I've seen is that people of all kinds, focused on all kinds of issues, with all kinds of political beliefs, the majority of people in communities dealing with festering problems have come to a place where they've said, you know what, I can't wait for the politicians to fix it anymore. Yeah. They're not gonna fix it. If I don't, if we don't actually start to solve these problems ourselves, they're not going to get solved. And I think that's huge. To me, that's my anecdotal yeah. evidence of the 93%. And yeah. so people are stepping up and saying, okay, how do I become a more effective problem solver? How do I actually yeah. lead? I'm not waiting for them anymore. Yeah. we got to figure out how to make it better now. Yeah, You're right. It's a right. huge opportunity. Totally. I remember the last time you and I were together on a stage, we were talking, and you made a really interesting point, as you always do. You said, you know what, the problem in this country now is we're spending too much time paying attention to the president, any president. Mm -hmm. We spend too much time talking about what's going on in Washington, D.C. Because in this country, Washington, D.C. shouldn't be the arbiter or the decider of as much as they have become the arbiter and the decider. And I thought, what an interesting point. And that's what I start I love that. seeing. That, that's what I see starting to happen now, that people are saying, I'm, I, I can't wait. By the way, I'm sick of it, to your point. Yeah. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I can't watch it anymore. How interesting that the elite media, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whoever you choose to listen to, 
watch, all of their viewership is declining. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And, and, and once again, when you know, we, we can get addicted to things, but we can get addicted to you know, cigarettes or Twitter or something like that. Yeah, but right. if we don't like it, sooner or later, we're not gonna do it. We're not gonna do it forever. Maybe cigarettes, you'll do it forever until you die of lung cancer. But I don't think there's something like that for Twitter. But ordinarily, when people do something that, that stimulates their dopamine pathways, like you know, watching really terrible television where people are screaming at each other and saying that, they're, that they're, they're, their political enemies are knaves and fools, stupid and evil, you know, they'll listen, they'll watch that for a little while, they'll scratch their itch, but if they don't like it, sooner or later, they're gonna do something about it. And that's, that's the beautiful thing, because you can do something about it in America. America's founders, they didn't see the federal government as the be all and end all, quite the contrary. They, they, they were afraid of centralizing power. Yeah. Uh, power they, concentrated, power abused, they it, understood it, that. Or, or at very least, it's, it's opportunities wasted. You know, in a, in a big, you know, a vast country where the expanse is unimaginable, particularly given the transportation at the time, they knew that you needed state and local control of things. And furthermore, you needed community organizations, you needed families, you needed churches, you needed all of the intermediary institutions. I mean, that's how America was designed. If you look at the, you know, what, what uh, Madison and Hamilton were talking about, if you look at what Jefferson was, was saying, what later Alexis de Tocqueville in 1835 yeah. was writing about in Democracy in America. So they would be shocked, really saddened, to see this preoccupation that we have with every tiny thing that's going on in Washington, D.C., as if it were some it's some reality show on cable television because that's kind of how we see it. Yeah, but, but well, it's but the good news I know for sure. <laughs> but the the good news about that is that that means that Americans seeing it as entertainment can look to something else as the source of seriousness. And I see all kinds of good opportunities going on, all kinds of good things going on all over the United States. When I go to Arizona. You know, I mean, they're not looking at Washington, D.C. They're paying attention to their own business. They're, as, you know, my mother-in-law would always say, they're sticking to their knitting. You know, they're, they're I mean, they're Doug Ducey and, and is doing all kinds of good things that are totally bipartisan. You know, he's, yeah. talking about, he's talking about criminal justice reform and vocational and technical education. He's solving problems. You, you go to Indiana. It's, there's all kinds of interesting things going on there. And by the way, this is not just Republicans, it's also Democrats. Yeah. There's cities that are experimenting with things. There are public-private partnerships going on all over the United States. So for people who are depressed, it's like, yeah, we're cooked. You know, the federal government can't get anything done. You know, nobody gets along with each other. All they do is insult each other. Look at something more local. The really dangerous thing for me are people who don't seem able to do that. You know, I was talking to somebody after the 2016 election. Somebody I'm close to was really progressive and it was really, really really bummed out about the election of President Donald Trump. And I got it, you know, I understand what he was talking about, but I said, you know, on the same day, who was elected superintendent of the public schools here? Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's like, that's a problem. Yes. You know, that really affects the well, kids. Or I mean, what are the things you can do right in your own community yeah, to make it better? Yeah, yeah, and people are finally figuring out because of the force of the frustration where they say, I, I can't, I feel impotent, I don't like it, it doesn't make me happy, I can't stop watching it, what do I do? It's the same kind of thing with somebody who's really super addicted to Twitter, and they finally figure out, they don't, they don't have to do it. Just stop. It's like, there's no, there's no gun to your head, man. Yeah, just stop. There's no stop. gun to your head watching President Trump's Twitter feed. You don't have to watch that. You don't have to pay attention to it. Is that why you started writing about happiness? Because that was, <laughs> to me, that was another example of you sort of, stepping out into an area that was going to be unexpected for a lot of you. He's a social scientist. He yeah. runs American Enterprise. And what is he talking about happiness for? But once again, it was rigorous and 
Mm-hmm. provocative and mm-hmm. challenging and you know, nurturing to the soul I, I think. think I hope you know it's a, you know, my great uh, my mentor was James Q Wilson the great social scientist the, probably the greatest political scientist of the past 100 years uh, he did he created the you know the broken windows theory of policing yeah, that Giuliani yeah. used he was the the social scientist that 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 introduced the idea that morality is a is a human concept based on you know empirical methods it's amazing what the stuff that he did he he has been with me since i finished my phd he wrote the forward to my first book and he was on the board of the american enterprise institute this guy was with me all the way until his death in 2012 and along the way at one point he said something to me that really affected my thinking a lot that answers your question about why i write about happiness he said, you know, public policy at its best only ever affects people at about the 5% margin of their life. I'm like, Jim, you could have told me that before I did my PhD in public <laughs> policy. You know? And I said, and I asked the question you'd ask, which is, so what's the other 95%? And he said, mostly love. Mm. Look, if you want to affect people's lives, if you want to solve social problems, you have to talk about the nuclear fuel rods, their happiness, and that's love. That's relationships. That's the faith that they have in God and the, the relationship they have with their kids and the friendships that they're able to make and the way that they're able to serve each other and whether or not they're lonely and whether or not they can actually form functional relationships in, in, in their environs around them. And if you can answer those questions, you can actually get at what people care about the most. See, the problem is we tend to, to focus on stuff that people care about less. It's funny, you know, these days, you spend a lot of time in, in uh, Northern California, which is this, you know, this gee whiz economy, right? And people often wonder, you know, all of these incredible innovations that are going on in Northern California, which are eye-popping. They're wonderful, actually. Why aren't people getting happier? Yeah, they do have a dark side, big time. Well, Twitter, like, we just talked for sure. about. <laughs> but, the, but even when they don't have a dark side, we're not getting happier. You know, we're able to be more productive. We're able to be more efficient, how come we're not happier? And the reason is because those are all in the 5% margin. Those are all complicated things at the 5% margin of our lives. What we really want is the 95% dark matter of our souls. And that's what comes about when we're a free country of free people who can get married and have friends and vote for whoever we want and have actual liberty. That's the stuff that matters. And so if you're going to do public policy, you've got to do happiness. There is no other way. And this is our opportunity because people are saying, I'm not happy. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about redesigning the country that we actually want, right? Well, yeah. Um, people want, wherever they are and whoever they are, fundamentally people want a life of dignity and purpose and meaning. Yeah. And that gives them happiness and fulfillment. Yeah. They have to feel respected and have dignity. They have to have purpose in their lives. They have to have meaning in their lives. And that comes from their relationships and their love and sometimes work if it's fulfilling and serving others. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's so true. So um, talk to us about your new book. And um, it's such an interesting set of ideas that, once again, are not what people would expect from a public policy social scientist. And they're also not what they'd expect necessarily from conservative, although that word has come to mean many things. <laughs> everything and nothing. In this yeah, point, right? everything yeah. and nothing. Everything yes. and nothing, yeah. yeah. So my book is called Love Your Enemies. How decent... Yeah, what an interesting title yeah, given these times. Yeah, no, subversive concept, Yes, right? subversive concept. Somebody said that 2,000 years ago and, and uh, uh-huh. wound up changing the world. Um, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. 
And basically, it starts off, the book starts off with an with a experience that I had and in 2014. Um, I was at, I was doing a, you and I are sort of on the same lecture circuit, and uh, even when you're the president of a think tank these days, there's not that much thinking in tanks. It's, <laughs> it's mostly when you're, <laughs> it's, it's mostly traveling around and giving a lot of talks yeah. and, and, you know, raising funds. It's, it's a very fun job, very fun. And uh, I was at, it was giving a talk to a, a conservative activist group in New Hampshire in 2014. And in the, I was the only one not running for president. At the, at, at who knows what, how they accidentally got the think tank president on the, on the speaking the schedule but that day. But I thought to myself, what can I do that's going to be different than somebody running for president? And, you know, running for president, you have certain things you need to do. You need to get people behind you and to support you. I get it, right? But I'm not running for anything. So I thought, what can I say that will be different and that will be helpful? So in the middle of my speech, I said, I want you to remember... Look, all of us agree. I mean, we're all politically conservative and economically conservative. And we're talking about these things. But I want you to remember the people who are not here because they don't agree with us. They're political liberals, progressives. And I want you to remember that they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're just Americans who disagree with us mm. freely. And, and, and afterward, this lady, she says to me, actually, I think they're stupid and evil. Mm. <laughs> and it was sort of funny, but... But that is how our political yeah. dialogue feels. And here's what it made me think about, Carly... I remembered my family in Seattle. That's where I grew up. You know, my mother was an artist and my father was a college professor. What do you think their politics were? And, and when that lady said that, she was just assuming that I, I knew nobody, hung out with nobody, was, loved nobody, who was on the other side of the aisle. Man, I know tons of people. Everybody I grew up with, people I esteem. Like I was in the music business, I'm an academic. I mean, it's like people I respect. I bet you... 100% of the people that are listening to this podcast and watching this video, I bet 100% love somebody with whom they disagree politically. Of course. My That's, gosh, I don't agree with anyone all the time. <laughs> I know. Not even myself, but certainly not the people closest yeah. to me, as my and husband would attest. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's the way it should be. And, 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 and so what was she doing? I mean, she was inadvertently expressing not anger toward the other side, but contempt. Contempt. The, the, the conviction of the utter worthlessness of the other side. And to express contempt is the way that we make permanent enemies. And that's what's ruining our country. That, and what we need, by the way, is not civility. That's a garbage standard. You know, if I said that, if I say, hey, Carly, m my wife Esther and I, were civil to each other. You'd say, like, Arthur, you, you guys need some counseling. <laughs> you know? Or, or the, my employees here at the American Enterprise Institute, they tolerate me. Say, well, that's That's bad. Well, that's it's bad. not a high-performing team, that's yeah, for sure. That's not a high-performing team, as you would have the CEO of Hewlett-Packard talking now. Um, it's also not even agreement, because agreement is just stagnation and mediocrity. We need a competition of ideas. No, no, no. We owe it to each other to love each other. And, and by the way, when, when Jesus said, love your enemies, in the fifth chapter of Matthew, he, he wasn't saying, you know, find some way to outsmart your foes, to vanquish them in some clever way. What he was saying was that you will... You'll destroy your enemies by destroying the illusion that they were your enemies. And this is what we need to remember about Americans. So this book, this new book, Love Your Enemies, it's a, it's a handbook for people that want to be leaders and they want to do this. They, they're convinced that they can be nice people, that they, they can be courageous in, in the way that they treat others, including those with whom they disagree. It's a handbook for people that want to renew the nation with the ideas of love. And, and, you know, I just I used all of my chops as a social scientist and all the things that I believe and everything is written on my heart. And if I do this right, it's a social movement. It's waiting to happen. Yes. <laughs>
I hope so. So this, I think, you know, people who are listening to us, if you want to be a leader and you want to be good and you want to serve others and you want to bring America back and make it truly great for everybody without vanquishing your foes and banishing them to some sort of outer darkness, this is a book I wrote for you. And I, I dedicate it to the people listening who want those things and I dedicate it to them with love. Well, what a great incentive to read the book. You know, it's interesting that um, one of the things that I say um, high-performing teams have to have, so let's just think of most people never fulfill their potential, although they could. Most teams don't always mm. live up to their potential. As a nation, we have so much untapped potential. Right. But one of the things that's absolutely required to unlock potential and perform at the highest level in any setting is you have to talk with people who disagree with you. Mm. I mean, it's just true. It's why diverse teams create better results. Right. And if you talk to a neuroscientist or a psychologist, they would tell you the only time that a person actually learns mm. something new or changes their behavior is when they are challenged right. by something that they don't already know and believe. Right. Which is to say that we can't learn or get better unless we are challenged by someone yeah, that's right. that we don't always agree with. Yeah, exactly right. So it's not just about the team getting better or the community getting better or the nation getting better. It's about us getting yeah, better. Yeah, that's right. And, of that's course, right. the other thing that, that uh, we know, nothing worth doing ever happens with a single person acting alone. Nothing. Everything that's worthwhile is some version of a team effort. And because of that, you have to collaborate with others. And the only way you can collaborate effectively with others is you have to the, have the humility to understand you don't know it all, you're not right about everything, and the empathy to actually see and hear someone else, what they bring to the table, their value, even when they don't agree with you. The, yeah. the thing that, that mm. cuts against what we're talking about, mm. love your enemy, disagree in a way that challenges both of you and leads to somewhere better, collaboration that's effective and achieves real uh, results. The thing that cuts against that, I think, is in a way we are naturally tribal. You know, a, again, a neuroscientist would tell you that actually our brains are programmed to recognize people like ourselves mm -hmm. and sort of go towards them. Mm -hmm. It was a survival mechanism mm -hmm. millennia ago. So we get kind of tribal. Our politics makes us more tribal. But truthfully, I think sometimes we're most comfortable with people like us. Mm. I mean, we can sit and finish each other's sentences, and we all agree it's comfortable. Mm -hmm. But it's not very effective, and it's certainly not fulfilling. Yeah. And it's not challenging, and we're not growing, and we're not learning. And things aren't getting better. Yeah. You know, there's a guy who teaches at, uh, um, at the medical school at WashU, Washington University in St. Louis. His name is Robert Cloninger. And he talks about something called neophilia, which is the love of new things. Mm. A and basically what he finds is that we have a tendency towards security. And yeah. tribalism is like with security. like. And yeah. Security. Yeah, I understand who you but are. But that's not the secret of happiness. No. The happiest people are the people who 
who have a, a practice of, of exposing themselves to sort of pathogens. And you know, it doesn't mean letting people cough on you. I mean, what, what it, it means is trying new things, things with which you're not comfortable. That, that gives people intense pleasure, it yes. turns out. But it takes actual work. And that's the corollary. It also takes courage sometimes. For sure, for sure. And, and like, there's certain things you're not going to, I'm not going to go expose myself to ISIS. That's not the kind of diversity I'm looking for. But I do want to expose myself. And I'm probably myself. not going to become a physicist tomorrow. But. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and, <laughs> I bet you could. You've done but, a lot of changes in your life. But I have read. But I have read a lot of books on <laughs> physics lately. Anyway, right. go ahead. And so there, there are certain pathogens you're not going to expose yourself to. But the point is that you should listen to new kinds of music, meet different kinds of people, talk to people who have different views than you, who are not going to threaten you and kill you, but they're just going to disagree with you. That's a good thing that yeah. brings in not just higher productivity on teams and business, and not just more effective politics. It brings intense pleasure. Why? Yes. Because what you find is that the, you have commonalities you didn't understand. That's called bridging. You know, and so th- there's two kinds of social capital. You know, that, that whole yeah. social science literature about social capital that Robert Putnam talked about. And, and bonding social capital is tribal, where that we bond because of the identity that we have in common. Bridging social capital is where like goes to not like and finds the things that they have in common as humans as well. So great teams and businesses, what do they do? What they have in common is an intense desire to succeed. That's what, they're, that's what they have in common. And then their differences, iron sharpens iron, as the Proverbs say. And so, you know, it's very interesting. There's a ton of data on this, that, that workplaces where everybody thinks the same way fail, where everybody looks the same way fail, yep. where everybody uh, has uh, uh, the, exactly the same sort of objective, they fail. Yeah. You want to cultivate this. Now, the most important kind of diversity of all, which, by the way, many universities have failed to apprehend, is diversity of viewpoint, diversity yes. of opinion, yes. intellectual diversity. That's, right. that's really what we need, right? Because, I mean, one of the reasons that it's been so important that men and women work together is because men and women think differently about different things. Not systematically, but you get different kinds of people that think in different ways. That's super good for teams, super good for businesses. It's been great for American business, as a matter of fact. Now, Okay, since the point is not that men and women work better together because they have, you know, XY versus XX chromosomes, but because they think differently. So let's look for even more of that idea diversity. Let's purposively go to build teams of people who think differently. And then let's say, if that's not just my source of innovation and productivity, that's my source of pleasure. Yeah. That's my source of happiness. Then look for it in your own personal life. I mean, that's a, it's, Carly, it's rocked my world since I've seen this. Because what am I doing now? When I find somebody in a room who's most different than me, I'm like a beeline for that person. That's what I... Now, I'm weird. You know, I'm weird. It's like, I mean, it's... Uh, you know, maybe I'm naturally like this. I'm, I'm neophilic. Well, but I don't know. I, I don't think you're weird. I think you're disciplined about following through on something that you believe works. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like any other habit or discipline. It works. I'm going to do more of this. You know, when you talk about it, it gives people pleasure. I, I think about some of the leadership labs and problem-solving sessions that we pull together for organizations that have a lot in common because they're focused on the same kind of issue. Hmm. So uh, we pulled a group of organizations together here in Washington, D.C. that are all focused on homelessness. However... Despite the fact that they all focused on the same issue, it turned out that they didn't collaborate very often. Mm. You know, there's a lot of competition for money, et cetera. However, that's not the point. The point is that they came into the room, as it always happens. It doesn't matter whether it's, to your point, a business, a community. They came into the room, and of course there was a little bit of um, 
trepidation. They had different ways of approaching things. We, in our work, um, facilitate, another word would be force, people <laughs> to get in a team with people they're different from. We mm -hmm. have a common cause, maybe, a common concern, in this case, homelessness. But get in a group with someone different. The joy, and I will use that mm. word, the joy that people experience when they sit down with someone they didn't know before, they didn't think they had a lot in common with, and all of a sudden they find common purpose, yeah. common ground. We don't think the same, but together we can achieve something that individually we couldn't. It reminds me of when I was a CEO, somebody said to me, You're, you were a philosophy major. Who was your favorite philosopher? Uh, no. What was your favorite business school book? Your favorite business book. And I said, well, I was a philosophy major. My favorite business book was Hegel. <laughs> uh, they didn't really know what I was talking about. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Mm -hmm. I said, I think that's the essence of how to get from where you are to somewhere better. Right. And I think actually that's what we're talking about. Thesis, antithesis. Mm. Not the same. Not the same. Yeah. A lot of disagreement, but if you can figure out how thesis and antithesis make synthesis, right. that's magic. And it also, to your point, it lights people up inside. Yeah. They it's become a, joyful and happy. It's a weird thing, you know. They don't expect it. So you people want comfort, right? They want to, you know, basically put on their pajamas and sit on the couch and watch Netflix. That's a very comforting thing to do, right? But, but and when you f impel them in some way to put on their clothes and go to a party, they tend to have more fun. But they didn't want to do it because the <laughs> the inertia was to keep sitting yes. on the couch, well, right? Well, there's a physics concept. Kind inertia. Of, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like true. it's 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 it, true. It, there's a, and there's 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 social inertia and there's business inertia and there's political inertia. And there's personal inertia, yeah, for to sure. your point. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that you find, however, is when you put you know Democrats and Republicans together in a room and you make them talk to each other and you have them start by talking about their children, they get much more intense joy than if they were talking to somebody that they've never met before. Because it's this discovery. It's like Lewis yeah. and Clark finding the Pacific Ocean oh. or something. It's like, wait a second, you love, you your, love, you your, love children your kids too. too. It's crazy. You know, and, and people, it's, it's, a, it's this discovery that's really revelatory and that's kind of what we need to find in the United States. Look, we, again, we shouldn't agree. It's not like we're going to agree on, on tax policy or foreign policy. I mean, the, the way that you and I see those issues as, as people who are politically conservative is going to be different than what the political liberals do. However, we need liberals. Here's an interesting thing. I can ask politicians this all day long. I'll say, how many of you, and I've done this with big groups of politicians, how many of you wish we lived in a one-party state? No hands. And no hearts either, by the way. No. Okay, you've just told me, if you're grateful to not live in a one-party state, axiomatically, you are grateful for the other party. Whoa. <laughs> Right. I mean, <laughs> and, you know, I don't feel grateful to people with whom I disagree all the time, but I should be grateful in a pluralistic society for people with whom I disagree because I'm grateful to be in a place that doesn't just have one opinion. And then you take it to the next level. So what are you going to do? If you actually want to be able to express your opinion, you think it's valuable, you have to fight for the other person. My dad taught me when I was a kid that the mark of moral courage is not fighting against people who don't hold your point of view. It's fighting for people who don't hold your point of view, uh, standing up to people who have your point of view, standing up to people on your own side on behalf of people on the other side. Because, you know, there's no, it might be. Well, maybe you could give that speech in Washington, D.C. these days. Yeah. No, no, I do sometimes. And, you know, here's the interesting thing. Um, 
politicians agree with me because they're people too. Yep. And they don't know what to do. I mean, they're they feel trapped. Uh, in they're the system. very trapped. They're yeah. very trapped in the system. And I, you know, some of my 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 friends, really close friends, are up on Capitol Hill, and they don't like it. They don't like it any better than you and I like it. And so that's why we have a responsibility to show. That's why I wrote the book. That's why you're doing your podcast. That's why we're doing what we can to. You know, a political movement tends to be downstream from a social movement. That's right. Even well, political. politics is downstream of culture. And it's so interesting. We come at it from a different point of view. Yeah. Uh, you and I are an illustration of what we're talking about. We come at it from different places, but we end up in the same place. I have a book coming out in April called Find Your Way, and it is... Tell me about it. it. I can't well, wait to read it. Well, it is starting at a personal level. How is it that you do all the things we're talking about? How is it that you find the courage and have the character to interact with people that are different than you and actually solve problems yeah. and how do you see possibilities in all the problems around you because every problem is an opportunity and how do you make an impact on that so whether it's love your enemies congratulations the book is out today mm -hmm. uh, or find your way coming in April April what I, 9th April 9th um, it's a business book uh, self-improvement book politics book all of all of the above I would call it more self-improvement it mm -hmm. starts from the personal mm -hmm. and it applies in any setting because I have been applying these principles in every setting mm -hmm. for a very long time I'm gonna pre-order it today. business politics oh thanks go on to CarlyFiorina.com. Sure. got it or um, I can go on Amazon I can well, either on one, Amazon either too, one. but um, th the point is I completely agree that people want a different way than what we have. It goes all the way back to what you said at the top. The 7% are in charge. Yeah. In charge of the noise, mm -hmm. in charge of the levers of power, and yet in this country, the citizen is sovereign. Mm -hmm. The citizen is sovereign. Not the media, not the president, the citizen is sovereign. Mm -hmm. And so we have the ability, every one of us, individually, but all of us collectively, have the potential and the ability to do so much more. And so I am mm. so excited to read the handbook. I love that term, mm. handbook. And uh, perhaps we can continue to collaborate on how to that. leverage this movement to get Let's people to understand they have far more power sure. than they realize and far more potential to make a positive contribution yeah. and change the order of things for the better. You know, they used to say that, you know, a couple of years ago when there was that when Tomas Piketty was has his book was really popular about the one percent getting richer and richer and all that, we are the ninety nine percent, and you know, and I always thought that's so silly, but you know what? We are the ninety three percent. That's right. We are the ninety three percent. Yeah, you know, and you know, I I demand to have a country where I don't hate liberals, because you know what? I don't. I love them just like I love conservatives, and there is zero reason. There is zero reason that I should agree and at the same time not have more love for people and live in a country where we can get along and where we can actually make progress. There is no reason that those things can't happen except that somebody's standing in the way and they're getting rich and powerful and famous on the basis of it. So we, that's the real populism that we need. It's a populism of yes. love in this country and let's do it. On that note, Arthur, I can't thank you enough. This has been an incredibly fun, not to mention, provocative and inspiring and thought-provoking conversation and I hope it is not the end but the beginning of many more. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you on Carly. Congratulations on, on Find Your Way. And congratulations on Love Your Enemies. That's all for now. 
But you can always check out more episodes online at carlyfiorina.com or on iTunes. And please subscribe so you can get all of the episodes. You can be the first to get updates and exclusive offers by texting, by example, to 345-345. You can also send us feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Carly Fiorina, or by email at byexample at carlyfiorina.com. Until next time, I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example.